0: Excitement is brewing over new research showing that morning cup of Joe may help you live longer.
1: So women with three or more children had a 12% lower risk of dementia. The blue light that comes from your cell phone or tablet and it could cause blindness. Research
2: shows high levels of stress in middle-aged people can reduce brain size. and.
1: I've got a
0: miracle appetite suppressant to kill your hunger.
3: This is the most promising technique we have towards zero deaths from breast cancer.
0: A new Harvard study suggests couples who eat seafood tend to have more sex and get pregnant faster. CRAP. C-R-A-P. It's a word I hear a lot these days when I hear people talking about the healthcare information they come across. Not just the nightly news or talk shows or newspapers they check in with regularly, but also the media messages coming from hospitals, universities, biomedical companies, patient advocacy groups, scientific journals, and all sorts of sources many of us trust to stay informed. Well, if the people are being fed crap, then you end up in a situation where people say the public is stupid. And Dave DeBronkart doesn't care for that thinking. For about a decade, he's been better known by his blogging name, E-Patient Dave, where the E stands for things like empowered, engaged, educated, equipped, and enabled. Anything but stupid. Things he learned to become when he was facing a dire cancer diagnosis he opted to become what he calls a patient activist.
4: Now, the remedy is to stop feeding them crap or to get some high-quality bullshit detectors. Uh, And what really worries me is the idea that the forces in the industry that are willing to spend money to promote their products, if that isn't balanced off with an independent voice that will double-check, proofread, fact-check, and so on, uh, then we're at the mercy of the people who are making the money.
0: That pretty well summarizes what we've tried to accomplish these past 12 plus years here at healthnewsreview.org to be that independent voice, to spot the BS, the pollution, if you will, that occurs as healthcare information flows from its source to the general public, and above all, improve the public dialogue on healthcare. So this podcast is very near and dear to our mission, because the focus is this. Who is polluting our health care information, and how?
3: I think press releases are really important.
0: That's General Internist Dr. Lisa Schwartz, who, along with her husband and research partner, Dr. Stephen Woloshin, has done extensive research on how medical information flows from researchers, through medical meetings and journals, then gets covered by journalists and ultimately is understood or misunderstood by the public. Now, back to press releases.
3: I think that they're the most direct communication with the media, from industry, from academic centers. And I think, you know, of course, their major goal is to solicit media attention all too often. They're full of exaggerations, or distortions which portray the research in a way which is likely to magnify its importance, minimize its limitations, and end up with a story that is insufficient just because it's framed in a way to begin with um, that's problematic.
0: But problematic how? I ask Woloshin if he thinks a bad press release can actually hurt people.
3: Definitely can cause harm because
2: when the stories get picked up and they get out there, if they're exaggerated or if they're incomplete or if they're not, if they don't include warnings and caveats, they definitely can change how people think about, you know, the results of medical research. They can affect people's choices about treatments, um, not just patients and consumers, but, you know, the, the clinicians as well. So I think, yeah, I think it's a really, really powerful lever.
0: Well, Ocean and Schwartz also see another source of pollution they believe doesn't get enough attention. And that's medical or scientific meetings in which very often the research that's being presented is not only very preliminary but also very marketable.
3: And I think that when covering an unpublished piece of research presented at a scientific meeting, particularly when there are strong financial interests, all too often what happens is we have just so much hype and not enough skepticism and limitations and just not enough information to really know what it means. But then those strong quotes come out, and then the stock price goes up, and that's what everyone remembers.
0: Schwartz and Woloshin do their research at the Dartmouth Institute of Health Policy and Clinical Practice. It's a prolific place with a wide range of resources worth taking a look at on their website. Also quite worthwhile is hearing Steve Woloshin's final thoughts on how our stream of healthcare information gets distorted, diluted, and polluted.
2: There are problems at each level of the journey of the information that you're describing. And um, so that we need the researchers to do a better job in how they report their results. We need the journalists to do a better job about being discerning about what to cover and what not to cover. There's lots of things that are too you know, early or um, not ready for prime time that shouldn't be covered. Uh, and, and when they do cover things, to be clear about including caveats, making sure they, ca- they quantify things, all the things that are in your health news review uh, checklist. But then the public has a responsibility too because there's all sorts of medical information out there of varying quality and the public really needs to, to work at being a skeptical reader. Otherwise, they're going to be misread.
4: Well, I'm um, an investigative, I guess you'd say an investigative medical reporter.
0: And John Fauber is probably too humble to say, but he's a very well-respected one. He flies under a lot of people's radar because his home paper is the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. But fortunately, his work is getting more of the attention it deserves. Because for the past decade or so, it's been featured on MedPage Today, a large national news site targeting healthcare professionals.
4: For the last uh, decade or so, I have been writing about conflicts of interest in medicine and essentially how money has corrupted uh, both the practice and regulation of medicine, often to the harm of patients.
0: Fauber could probably identify dozens of sources of pollution along the stream of healthcare information. He's a prolific writer who knows the healthcare beat extremely well. So I feel a bit unfair when I ask him to pick just one source of pollution that he thinks is underrecognized, despite having a major impact.
4: There's one that has sort of avoided a lot of scrutiny over the years, which I uh, think is a real problem in, in medicine, and that's this idea of uh, continuing medical education.
0: Otherwise known as CME, continuing medical education courses are what all doctors are required to take to prove they're up-to-date and therefore maintain their license to practice. Many of these courses are sponsored by the drug and device industry, often in posh locations, and often with the faculty for the courses being paid by the company offering the free course. Unlike other financial arrangements between industry and providers, this sort of income does not need to be reported under the Physician Payments Sunshine Act.
4: You know, oftentimes these courses will end up recommending use of drugs that are made by the company that funded the course. Uh, Oftentimes they will recommend off-label uses for the drugs of the company that funded the course. Oftentimes doctors who are hired as the faculty for the course are consultants who have get extensive, large amounts of money from drug companies, and, it, and it's a sort of a perfect storm because doctors need credit to maintain their licenses. These courses are free. They can get the credit for free, and drug companies are looking for a way to increase their sales, and all of this is pretty much going under the radar because this, this money doesn't have to be reported.
0: But does this really pollute the flow of healthcare information, or is it just polluting doctors? Well, both, actually. There's now mounting evidence that such corporate largesse does impact how doctors diagnose and treat illness.
4: It comes down to who is the doctor working for? Are they working for the patient? Are they making a decision that's purely in the interest of the patient? In other words, if I'm going to put you on a a drug or recommend a, a, a medical device or something that needs to be implanted in you, Am I doing that only because that is like what I think is the best thing for you? Or am I doing it because I get, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a year from the company that makes that drug or the device?
0: So it's quite possible this influence provider, knowingly or unknowingly, might provide influenced information. Information at risk of being incomplete, imbalanced, or even incorrect. I asked Fauber what he thinks should be done about it.
4: Unfortunately, a lot of these things come down to regulation. Um, you know, I I think part of the solution would just be more of that, you know, just demanding more disclosure. I'm demanding that any kind of payments, whether it's for doing promotional talks or working as a consultant or getting royalties for a product or conducting continuing continuing medical education classes, all of that has to be reported and and maybe would, you know, maybe a requirement that there be some teeth in the rule these rules, you know, so that if you don't report, there's some kind of sanction or something that can be put both on the drug company and the, the doctors or, you know, the person receiving the funds. And I think if patients knew uh, that their doctor had been getting a lot of money from a company whose product the doctor was saying you should be on or should be you know, getting, they might think twice about that.
1: The quality of of information, of scientific information, is actually suspect from the very beginning, from its source.
0: That's Dr. Virginia Moyer, a general pediatrician and expert in evidence-based medicine. She's talking about something Steve Woloshin of the Dartmouth Institute alluded to earlier when he mentioned researchers needing to do a better job of reporting their results.
1: Let's just imagine that I'm a researcher. I've got five projects that I've been working on. I got to get all these papers written. I am busy. I don't have a lot of time. So I'm going to put my heart and soul into getting the papers written where I have a result that people are going to be excited about. And the negative studies, particularly the small negative studies, are just not going to get published. But they're not going to get published, not because the editor rejected them, because I never submitted them. And there is solid evidence behind that.
0: What Moyer is referring to is what's called publication bias. The decisions that researchers or publishers make regarding what they consider to be significant or showing a positive result or likely of public interest. It's one of the furthest upstream influences on our healthcare information. But Moyer also had a front row seat to another influence, another source of pollution that's often overlooked patient advocacy groups and professional medical societies, and how their agendas, which often seem 100% altruistic, run counter to the best available scientific evidence and therefore have potential to cause harm. Between 2011 and 2013, Moyer was the chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, an independent panel of healthcare professionals who carefully evaluate existing evidence and making recommendations about preventive healthcare measures, many of them on common screening tests.
1: The task force gets criticized all the time for saying there's not enough evidence to make a recommendation. And we always get letters that say you're killing people because when you don't make a recommendation, then people don't get their screenings and they're going to die without really understanding that the whole reason we didn't make a recommendation is that you actually can't come to that conclusion. You
0: don't have the evidence. But certain groups would clearly benefit from evidence that supported earlier or more aggressive screening. For example... If the recommended age for breast cancer screening was pushed earlier, or the numbers needed to qualify for high blood pressure or osteoporosis were pushed lower, with such aggressive screening, millions more people would qualify for further evaluations and treatment, meaning potentially billions of dollars for those with a stake in the game.
1: Well, I think probably one of the most important things is for people to understand that particularly advocacy organizations and professional organizations very often have funding from people or uh, businesses that have something to lose um, and are going to strongly support whatever approach is most beneficial to them.
0: Case in point, last year, the American College of Cardiology, a very influential group of cardiologists, and the American Heart Association, one of the country's largest advocacy groups, Both endorsed lowering the threshold for what qualifies as high blood pressure, from 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury down to 130 over 80. That proposal would, essentially overnight, make nearly half of U.S. adults hypertensive. But another physician's group, the American Academy of Family Physicians, said not so fast. They found the supporting research preliminary and weak. The touted benefits were overemphasized while harms were minimized, and there were concerns of significant conflicts of interest. It's exemplary of this very troubling source of pollution. That is, many of the guidelines doctors use every day to screen for diseases or even define them are written by professional societies with significant industry funding, but with very little input from independent sources. That's precisely why the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is such a vital, independent voice. You got the accent, the the to the As I listened to these people reflect on how our healthcare messages get polluted, two things became quite clear. First... That all along the way, there are incentives for people to, as the song goes, accentuate the positive and minimize the negative. In short, that is branding, which is nothing more than presenting oneself in the best positive light. And that, by definition, is an imbalanced and incomplete picture. What we need to make an informed choice is the exact opposite. We need balanced information. And we're rarely getting that. The other thing that became quite clear is that we need to approach healthcare news much more critically, to turn on what e patient Dave called our BS detectors at the opening of this podcast. The people you just heard from are all renowned for carefully scrutinizing evidence, and they all believe that the public needs to be much more skeptical about healthcare messages. And I would add the following. We tend to expect clear-cut answers from our doctors and researchers, but medical science doesn't work that way. It's slow and careful, and there's always room for caution and more questions. Dare to ask them. This podcast is a production of healthnewsreview.org. It's produced at our institutional home, the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota along the banks of the mighty Mississippi River. I'm Michael Joyce. Thanks for listening.